The following audio is from Downtown Church, a kingdom-focused, gospel-centered, multi-ethnic, multi-class ministry in Memphis, Tennessee. For more information, please visit downtownchurch.com. This morning's scripture reading is the eighth number of Psalm. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man? that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him. Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beast of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. This is the word of the Lord. everybody. Uh, it is a privilege to be with you this morning, and I want to jump right in, but before I do that, I just want to say, uh, can we give a big round of applause and thank you to the music team up here? Um, they, they deserve it every week, but one of the advantages of, of not being on staff here but getting to preach is you get glimpses behind the scenes, and uh, Adriana is just such an incredibly gifted leader who is leading us each and every week into worship, and uh, for the last month, I've known that I was going to be preaching on this psalm, and I kept thinking, I need to write Adriana and tell her to pick these couple songs, and I never did, and she picked them anyways. <laughs> And that's partially the Holy Spirit, which is great. Give it up for the Holy Spirit. Um, but I'm Presbyterian, so I'm also going to remind you, it's also a bunch of hard work. Because I asked Adriana this morning, and she said, I look at the scriptures every week. And so it, the music that we sing is not just happenstance. It's not just what happens to be on the radio. It's the result of Adriana leading us and guiding us and investing in music that draws our hearts to the word of God. And the band, it just, it's just incredible. And I'm so grateful, Adriana, for your leadership and for the whole team. And it's just such a huge privilege to be here. So let's, let's jump right in. Uh, I've I got to warn you, we haven't had a screen for a few weeks, and now we do, so I'm going to use it. I'm really excited about this. So we're going to start out with one of my favorite comic strips. This is Calvin and Hobbes, the boy Calvin and his, his tiger Hobbes. This is one of my favorite strips from one of my favorite strips. And in it, Hobbes is looking out into the universe. He says, wow, what a clear night. Look at all them stars, millions of them. And Calvin looks at those same stars, and he says, yes, we're just tiny specks on a planet particle hurling through the infinite blackness. And they both look at the stars, 
And then Calvin says, let's go inside and turn on all the lights, right? Now what's going on there? What's going on is Calvin is looking out at everything and the immensity of the universe and the smallness of himself and it's so creepy it's giving him the heebie-jeebies. And he's like, let's run inside and turn on all the lights. Let's distract ourselves. Let's forget that we're these tiny little creatures flying through the cosmos, right? Well, this morning, God has given us a prayer, a psalm, that will also teach us to look out into the universe, but give us a very different response. So this morning, I want to suggest to you that Psalm 8 is a prayer that teaches us a different way of seeing. And this morning, I want to talk about how it teaches us to see at least four things. First, praying Psalm 8 teaches us to see the overwhelming, outstanding, all-encompassing glory of God. Praying Psalm 8 teaches us to see the overwhelming, outstanding, all-encompassing glory of God. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. The psalmist looks out. He sees the earth. He sees the heavens. He sees the bottom. He sees the top. He sees the whole thing. And everywhere he looks, his words are drawn to praise and prayer and gratitude. He looks into the universe and he sees glory. Up and down, top to bottom, everywhere. Have you ever been overwhelmed with wonder? Have you ever been lost in praise? I mean, for me, the biggest example of this is when my children were born and I was there in the room. And, and childbirth is a crazy thing because objectively speaking, it is disgusting. Like there's no way around it. The whole thing is gross, right? And yet for my second child, I was there. I caught Ames. I was the first person in the world to touch this human. And I was just overwhelmed. I was dumbstruck. I was amazed. I couldn't even speak. And the psalmist gives us words to look at all of creation and have that exact same response. The prayer of Psalm 8 is flabbergasted by God's glory, overwhelmed, in awe. And that's where the psalm begins, and that's where the psalm ends. Because Psalm 8 teaches us how to talk about who we are in the world and what our purpose is. And Psalm 8 teaches us how to look at creation and animals and the earth and everything that's in it. And the way that Psalm 8 teaches us to think about ourselves and everything else is by beginning and ending in praise. You see, Psalm, verse 9 ends exactly where the psalmist begins. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. If we pray Psalm 8, we learn that we can't talk or think or see ourselves rightly unless we begin by looking and talking about God and end by looking and talking about God. We can't look out at the world and think about what's going on in our universe unless we begin by talking and thinking and praising God and end by talking and thinking and praising God. Praying Psalm 8 teaches us that our lives are to be bookended by praise. We begin in praise. We end in praise. Everything else is details. Psalm 8 teaches us that our entire lives are to be lived from praise to praise. Uh, Keith Green, uh, my favorite Christian singer from back in the day, said in one of his songs, make my life a prayer to you. Psalm 8 teaches us that the life, that our, our, the prayer that our life is meant to be is a prayer of praise. What about us? When you look at yourself, when you look at your neighbor, when you look at your workplace or look at the world, where do you begin? Where do you end? 
If you're like me, I often begin with myself and end with complaint. Right? But God teaches us to begin and end our life with praise for the glory and goodness and majesty and wonder and awe and beauty that's everywhere we look if we have eyes to see. If you prick the universe, it bleeds glory, says the psalmist. And praying Psalm 8 teaches us to see that rather than the infinite empty spaces that Calvin sees when he looks into the night sky. And the only way that we learn to see that way is by praying. That's why Psalm 8 is a prayer. Psalm 8 is not a teaching that says, you ought to think about God this way. It's, a pr- it's words that we pray and by praying learn to see differently. And that means that, that applying this point is all about developing a habit of praise. Applying this point that the psalm teaches us to see the overwhelming, unbelievable glory of God is about building a habit of praise. And here, what we do is simple to understand, but really difficult to do. Because we know where we develop habits of praise, right? I mean, every single one of us, I give you two seconds and a list, and you could write down, here's where I develop habits of praise. I come to church on Sunday morning, Sunday school, worship, I pray with my family or my roommates or the people around me. I go to community group and I read my Bible and pray on my own. That's where we develop the habits of praise. It's pretty simple. We develop the habits of praise in those places and then we learn that the rest of our lives begins and ends with praise as well. Really simple to understand, right? Very difficult to do. Because so so often my life and your life is organized around everything but praise. If we're honest... If I'm honest, meeting with God in the morning or at the end of the day with my Bible open and my mouth open in praise is like the least important moment. Yeah, I'll do it if everything else is okay, right? But like if I'm sleepy or hungry or grumpy or whatever, happy, sad, if anything can keep me from doing it, right? Or worship, like how easy is it on Sunday morning for me to miss the first 15 minutes of whatever's going on here just because I'm tired or grumpy or sleepy or my kids blah 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 blah. It's not as easy now because my wife works here so I have to be here early. And I still find ways to be late. So here's the point. How are we as a community developing habits of praise? It's simple. You prioritize this stuff. You just prioritize this stuff. You just show up. You just say the Psalms give me the language I just got to open them up and say them. And you figure out on your own, what does that mean? Is that every morning? Is that every evening? Is it on your lunch break? And then you look at the people you live with and we say, are we doing family devotions? Are we doing roommate devotions? Am I going to talk to my neighbor on Thursdays? Right? Children, by the way, every, I, the kids are in here. Kids, as soon as you learn to read, you can have a self-driven development of a habit of praise. Right? Kids, the Psalms are amazing. You will like them. Open them up in the morning. Read them. Let them teach you how to pray. Parents, we can help our kids with this. Right? So we develop the habits of praise or we don't. And here's what the psalm teaches us. If we don't, we won't get anything. Because the psalm is, like I said, is going to go look at you and me and the world and our purpose. But the only way it can do any of that is by beginning with praise and ending with praise. 
But secondly, Psalm 8 teaches us to see that all people are created in God's royal image. Praying Psalm 8 teaches us to see that all people are created in God's image. And to get this, I really want to focus on this, what is man that you are mindful of him bit. Because when the psalmist moves from, oh Lord, oh Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And then the psalmist moves to, what does that mean for me? What does that mean for you? What does that mean for us? And the first thing he says is he stands with Calvin from Calvin and Hobbes, and he looks out at the stars and says, what is man that you are mindful of him? Look at all those stars. Look at all that space. Look at all that stuff. How could we be important at all? Right? And by the way, just as an aside, the language of the Psalms here, we translate it man because that's the easiest way to make it singular, but this is humanity. This is about men and women. What, is, what, what are you, person, that God is mindful of you? So the psalmist says, how are we going to talk about what people are for? And he looks out at the universe, he's like, this thing is huge! So let's take a minute and think about this thing being huge. I've got another image. Like I said, I'm going to tear it up with this projector this morning. Okay, that's the solar system, right? Anybody ever seen that? Clap if you've seen this picture, right? Okay, there's one hanging in your room in science class, wherever, and it's pretty cool. You're like, oh, look at all those planets and the sun. They're huge. They're far away. It's enormous. But it looks like you can put it on a sheet of paper. And actually, the universe is nothing like that. Right, I did some research this week. Let's look at some of this. This is really exciting stuff. My wife was a science teacher, so I get into this. Let's say that you took that sun, the sun you see in the sky that's like billions of miles around, and you shrunk it down to the size of this volleyball. Like, imagine that we shrunk the sun to the edge to the size of this volleyball. Pluto, the furthest planet in our galaxy, would be 10 football fields away. A thousand yards, if this is the sun, and you wanted to walk to Pluto, you'd have to walk 10 football fields away. It's enormous. Now let's, let's make it a little different. If you shrunk the sun even further to the size of a penny, let's say you shrunk the sun to this size, and you said, well, where's the closest star to us? The psalmist says, look at all the stars. Well, how far away is the closest star to us? If the sun was this size, the closest star to us would be further away than St. Louis or Nashville. If the sun was this size, you'd have to drive for 350 miles to get to the closest sun. Now, let's do one more. If you were to get this CD, and all the youth are like, what's a CD? But let's say you took that whole picture, sun through Pluto, and you made it this size. All the stars that we can see, all of them, would be in a space as large as the United States. If, the, if our solar system was this size, stars would be from Maine to Florida to Washington State to New Mexico to California. And those would just be the stars in our galaxy. And the astronomers tell us there are billions of galaxies. You are like, a, you are smaller than a germ. You are less than a molecule. What are you? Nothing except, the psalmist says, except, you are nobody except that God is mindful of us. That he listens and cares for us. And because of that, because God shows up to us, these little tiny germy things, because God shows up to us like that, when the psalmist looks at us, he sees that we have been made just a little bit lower than the heavenly beings. Just a little bit lower than the heavenly beings. And I actually think, if you look at some of your other translations, it's probably better to translate that version, you have made him just slightly lower than God. 
these little germs. You have crowned him. You have put crown him with glory and honor. This is creation theology that we get from Genesis 1 and 2 where God says, I made you men and women in my image. You bear the family resemblance. You've got my fingerprints on you. You may be less than a germ in this infinite cosmos, but you look like me. And you've got glory and honor on your head because of it. Now this identity, this glory, it's completely derived. It's completely borrowed. It doesn't come to us because of anything that we are. But it comes to every single one of us because of who God is. You know, in David's day, when David wrote this thing, right? Uh, the only people that you called image of God were kings. Right? In David's day, other people would say, yes, that person's made in the image of God. But they'd only be talking about men who are the most powerful in society. And Genesis 1 and 2 in Psalm 8 say every single human being is made in God's image and called to rule. Which means that every single one of you are kings and queens in God's world. Kings and queens, royalty. Every single one, regardless of your gender, regardless of your ethnicity, regardless of your economic class, regardless of what you've done with your life. Kings and queens in his world. Rulers filled with glory. Brothers and sisters, have you learned to see yourself this way? Kids, teenagers, I remember sort of what it was like to be a kid and a teenager. It's like one long beauty pageant that you're losing at, right? It's like one long PE pick a team where you're the last pick, right? I got bad news for you kids. That's what all of life feels like. <laughs> Right? Like I, like I still go to stuff. And even if they ask me to do something, like even if I get asked to talk, I give my talk, people applaud, and then I walk up the stage and go, I'm such a loser, I'm such a loser, I'm such a loser. Right? We all struggle with identity. We think we're nobodies. We think we're just specs. Brothers and sisters, prayer that begins and ends with praise draws our eyes to see that you are royalty in the sight of the only being who matters. That's what you are. It's yours. It's given to you. And adults, some of us, some of us have dealt with, with serious anxiety. I mean, when I go to my therapist, that's what we talk about. Anxiety about how I see myself. And some of you have experienced even much deeper seasons of depression and anxiety and self-loathing. And you've wondered, do I really matter? And we're not going to solve all of that in the next 10 minutes. But a part of the prescription for our self-hatred is these kinds of prayers that remind us that you are a son or a daughter of the Most High King. That praise of God does not lead to despising myself. You know, some of y'all don't know that this is a Presbyterian church, but for those of you who do, you might also know that we're not actually known for thinking very highly of ourselves. You know, we Calvinists are kind, we stick with the like bug part, like you're a worm, right? Uh, and that's true, except that God visits us. And so the bigger and bigger and bigger we see that God is, actually the more and more and more and more valuable we see ourselves because you are made in God's image. That's all good news. Here's the bad news. That same royalty, everyone in our culture is like, yes, I do need to develop a self-royalty talk to myself. So we're on, we're on the same page in our culture with that. Here's the bad news. You gotta look at everybody else on the planet like that too. 
Every other person, you know, yes, everyone is, no, 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 no. Every single person. When you amen that, you're not thinking about all the people that you really don't like. Because every one of us walks around with a list of people who, truth be told, we don't believe are kings and queens in God's world. Who is it? Is it the kid who got killed in a police interaction after doing maybe some really terrible stuff that you don't think is a king or a queen in God's world? Is it the police officers who were involved in that interaction? Who you don't believe were kings or queens in that world? Is it someone with severe disabilities? Is it an elderly person whose dementia is so bad they cannot even recognize they're in a room anymore? Is it a rim immigrant or a refugee? Is it an asylum seeker that you don't think really is made in God's image? Is it someone with a MAGA hat or a Bernie poster? Is it a coworker that you hate? Is it a terrorist? Is it someone from a different religion? Is it someone from a different sexual orientation? Is it fill in the blank? Praying this prayer teaches us that even those people, whoever your those people are, are kings and queens in God's world, an inalienable identity. They still show the signs of God's fingerprints. Every single person without remainder. Jesus tells us to pray for our enemies. This is a hard prayer to pray for our enemies. Because it forces us to recognize that apart from God, we're just like those little tiny germs hurtling through space. But because of God, we're kings and queens in his world together, no matter what. Third, praying Psalm 8 teaches us to see that all God's image bearers are given a job to do. Praying Psalm 8 teaches us to see that all God's image bearers are given a job to do. You are kings and queens in God's world, but God doesn't make you kings and queens just so you can sit on a throne and have a fancy title, right? Every job title comes with a job description. Being a king and queen in God's world as your identity means you have a job description to rule with God under his lordship. In fact, that's what all of life is about. The point of the identity that we have been given is not for ourselves. It is a summons and a call and a challenge to do the work that God has called us to do. And the way that we do this work, we borrow from God, just the way we borrow our, our glorious identity from God, but it's ours nonetheless. Uh, I love uh, How Howard Thurman, the uh, black uh, spiritual writer and theologian who wrote and inspired Dr. King in his book, Jesus and the Disinherited. He's, he's talking, I think I have this quote, he's talking about uh, how Jesus treats a woman who was caught in sin. And he says, Jesus met the woman where she was and treated her as if she were already where she now wanted to be. He stirred her confidence into activity. This is the part I love. He placed a crown above her head, which for the rest of her life she would keep trying to grow tall enough to wear. That's what Psalm 8 does to you and me. It places a crown of glory and honor over our heads and says, grow up into it! Live your life here under my lordship, ruling and reigning with me. Of course you can't do it. Nobody could do it, but grow up into it. Be what you are in me. Live what I've given you to live in me. The psalm is a summons. 
It goes straight from, you've crowned him with glory and honor, to you have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You've put everything under his feet. You know, it's like, I was thinking this week about if somebody gave me, like, my dream car, just close your eyes and think of your dream car, it's going to be different from other people. You know, maybe it's a Cadillac or a Maserati or a BMW or something I don't even know the name of. I'm not really that into cars. And it'd be super cool to have one of those cars, right? I mean, they gleam, they glisten, they got all this tech now, you know? They all look like they're from Back to the Future now, right? But can you imagine how angry I would be at you if I gave you one of those cars and you kept it in the garage? But the whole point of the vehicle is to get on the road, right? It's, it's an assault on the engineers who made the car to leave it in your front yard or your driveway or in the garage. It doesn't make sense. It's incomprehensible. And it is equally incomprehensible for you and me to bear the fingerprints of our king and then refuse to rule with him under his kingship. It makes no sense to refuse to live our lives in line with the job that God has given us is to be a Maserati that never leaves the garage. And it's stupid. It doesn't make any sense. We can co-rule with God. He puts the crown above our heads and invites us to grow up into it. How do we do that? We could talk about that for like six months. We could have a six-month sermon series, How Do I Co-Rule with God? And we could talk about justice and evangelism and family and your workplace and all sorts of great stuff that, frankly, I would rather talk about this morning. But I decided that we're going to stick with the text and apply one thing that the psalm makes very clear that living as a co-ruler with God means, and that's how we treat the earth and the animals that live on it. You see, God says... You've given him dominion over the works of your hands. You've put all things under his feet. And then he clarifies. All sheep and oxen, those are the animals that you use in your economic life. The beasts of the field, those are the wild animals that are around you that you don't have much to do with. The birds of the heavens, the fishes of the sea, and whatever passes along the paths of the sea. In other words, God's saying, every creature in the universe is mine. I rule over it. But I have decided to give it to you for you to rule over it in my place. You are going to be a ruler under me over creation. And that means that we have to think about how are we doing with that job description? How are we doing with that part of our job description? We sang earlier this beautiful song about you know, if the rocks cry out in silence, if the trees, if everything that breathes and has life gives praise to you, we have to look at the way we actually treat those creatures in creation and ask, are we helping the forests and trees and birds of the air and fish of the sea show God's glory? Or are we messing that up? And I have to say that we're messing it up in some places. And I'm messing it up in some places. Uh, let's think about one very, very simple thing. The issue of litter. Okay? Overuse of plastic products and litter. Uh, the other day, Rebecca and I were sitting on our front porch, and it was raining like it is now, and all of a sudden there was a river, and in that river, it was a river of trash. I mean, it was hilarious. It was just like bags and, and you know, plastics, they're just flowing down the street. And you're like, man, where does all that go? I'll tell you where it goes. The plastic that we throw out and dump in the streets and everywhere else, it ends up in the ocean. And it ends up in the stomachs of, next slide, turtles for instance. That right there is the inside of a turtle. Can you tell how much that is plastic? Quite a bit. 
Scientists estimate that one out of every two turtles in the ocean is carrying around a bunch of plastic that it's eaten because the stuff we throw in our streets ends up in the ocean. Or maybe it ends up in the belly. This one's kind of gross. This is one of the one million seabirds that die from eating plastic every year. One million. The lighter, the bottle caps, the stuff that didn't make it into our waste bin ends up in the bellies of birds like this and they die. Now, I know that some of you think that I'm moving in like a really unfortunate political direction, but the Psalm says we're supposed to take care of the birds of the air and whatever passes over the paths of the sea as an act of co-ruling with God. That bird is not crying out in glory to God anymore because of us, because of you, because of me. So what do we do? Well, we take this stuff seriously. We use less plastic. We throw away less stuff. We don't throw our junk in the yard, right? Uh, and, and I love preaching at downtown because you can always pick somebody who's living it out. A couple months ago, we prayed for Betty Massey who had a heart attack. We did some hallelujah stuff when she got better. But what you don't know is like 17 minutes after she got home, my wife spotted her on the curb picking up her neighbor's trash. That's what it looks like to be a queen in God's world. Who's saying the way that we care for our places. The average American worker, this statistic is astounding, sends 500 disposable cups into the trash each year. That's more than one cup per day if we worked every day of the year. That's absurd. So what if Christians were known as people who took that stuff seriously and said our waste, our habits, they hurt things and we're going to stop. We're going to recycle more, we're going to use less, we're going to reduce. You might think that's all propaganda. The psalmist thinks it's an act of worship. It's a way to live our life that begins and ends with praise. These are wild animals. What about the animals that we work with? The animals that we work with, we, we primarily work with them in our context as food. And I love food. I love food so much, it's unhelpful. And the congregation looked at the preacher and said, yes, we know, Michael. <laughs> It's clear that you love food. And I particularly love meat. I really love meat. I really love ribs and barbecue and all hot wings. Oh my gosh, I love a hot wing. Fried chicken, Gus is, ah, oh, it's so good. And so it's hard for me to suggest to you this morning that there are some things that we do as a culture in relationship to the animals that we eat that fall far short of the psalmist's command that we take care of God's creatures the way he does. Let me just give you two examples. Uh, pigs. The female pigs that give birth to the pigs that we raise for bacon, many of them are raised in gestation crates. They look like this. I don't know if you can tell. Every single one of those pigs, they're all about 500 pounds, spend their entire lives in one of those boxes. They never can turn around. They never see the dirt. They never see the sun. They're artificially inseminated. They don't leave that pen when they give birth to their babies. And when the, the uh, baby producing pigs die, they are ground up and fed to the baby pigs that they have given birth to in many instances. Now, in Deuteronomy, God says, hey, you've got this ox. He's doing work for you. He's going to plow your field. And then you're going to eat him. But you can't put a muzzle on him while he works in your field. Because if the ox is helping you plow, the ox has a right to the food. In other words, God looks at an animal that we use in our economic life and then eat for food and says, there are still limits to how you treat that creature. And the psalmist says that's because that creature belongs to God. And as we sang earlier, 
the pig is designed somehow to bring praise to God. And we have to ask ourselves, is this helping creation sing the praise of God? The praises of God who created everything top to bottom, who called it all good, who loves it? Think about the psalm we read earlier this morning where it's like creatures of the field, beasts of the earth, sing praise to God. Is that what we're offering to the world? Is that what it looks like for creation to sing praise to God? I think probably not. Same thing with the chickens that give us all of our eggs. I love eggs. I eat, love even more the desserts that we make with eggs. Here's the problem. A lot of the chickens that give us eggs, I don't know if you can see what's in there, they spend their entire life in these cages, never see the dirt, never see the sun, are always in a cage that no single bird could raise its wings large enough to be outspread. Most of these chickens have less space than a space sheet of paper. For the entirety of their lives. I'm not against meat, I'm not against food, I, I like food, I want to eat food, I want to eat those eggs. But if, if part of what it means to be a king and queen in God's world is to take care of the creatures, and that's what Psalm 8 says, we've got to ask ourselves, does this look like God? Does this look like, does this have its finger, his fingerprints on it? Okay, so what do we do? I don't know all what we do. Uh, Wendell Berry says, when we gather to talk about the environment, we don't gather as a group of accusers, we gather as an assembly of the guilty. I'm not good at this. My family has struggled with these ideas and we have not done well. But some people in our congregation are showing us the way forward. Some of you have made decisions to reduce the amount of meat that you eat because of these tragedies. Some of you have figured out that there actually are farmers out there who are trying to raise pigs for bacon and chickens for eggs in ways that treat them like they think God might want them treated. Farmers who are figuring out how to produce bacon by pigs who spend their lives out in pastures and foraging about, and chickens that live normal chicken lives, right, as they give us eggs. And some of you have done the research to find out that there are labels that we can learn about, things like pasture-raised beef, or forage-raised pork, or cage-free chickens, and if you buy any of that, you're gonna have to do some more research, and I'm sorry, some of you are like, eh, you didn't give us enough application points, I don't know what to do. I'm just telling you, following God is hard work, right? So if you buy this, you're gonna have to go out and do your homework, I'm not apologizing for that. But some of us are going to have to go out and understand those labels and be like, man, maybe we should change how we spend money. Maybe we should spend more money with restaurants that raise animals in a different way. Maybe we should have to do some research for that. And some of you may figure out how do we change this at a cultural level. How do we become the farmers who do this differently? How do we become the restaurateurs who do this differently? How do we work in local and city and state government? Because everybody's caught in the system. Nobody likes this. The farmers who do this don't like this. So we need people to bring their creative ingenuity to make this space better for the world. And we need to support as a congregation the people who do that. Why? Because we're all hippies and we're all tree huggers? No, because God says, I've given you my creatures to take care of. By the way, lest you think this is a late issue, like a recent issue, like this is just because I've been watching too many Democratic Democrat debates or something. The, the, uh, William Wilberforce, the guy who ended the slave trade in England. You know what else he and his pack of friends did? They created the world's first so Christian society for the ethical treatment of animals. It's still in action today. That was one of their other causes. They had two, essentially. One was liberating slaves, and the other was making sure that people treated animals in a humane way. This is not new. Moses knew about this. Wilberforce knew about this. We need to know about this. It's part of our job description, and so are a million other things. 
But we have a hard time talking about this one. I have a hard time talking about this one. So I wanted to talk about it this morning. But last, so, so, so praying Psalm 8 teaches us to see the glory that all of creation exudes. Praying Psalm 8 teaches us to see each one of us as kings and priests in God's world, rulers. Praying Psalm 8 teaches us to look at the job description, to care for God's world that God has given to each one of us. But lastly, praying Psalm 8 teaches us to see that we fall short and to look for a king who doesn't. See, when we look at our lives, our lives don't begin and end in praise. When we look at our lives, we don't see people as, as made in God's image, and we don't treat them as made in God's image. When I look at my life, I'm failing miserably on caring for creation and caring for my neighbor and caring for anything, my children even. We fail. God gave us this incredible identity and job description, and we've blown it, every single person. And that's why the author of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 2 says, Somewhere, someone has said, What is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you created him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor. You put everything in subjection under his feet. And then the author says, the obvious point, at present, we don't see that. Hey, David, when we look at the world, we don't see people living and being and doing and praising like you called them to. But the author of Hebrews says, let me tell you what we do see. We do see Jesus. Where we fail to be sons and daughters, we see the Son of God. Where we were called to be image bearers, we see the one who is the image and glory of the invisible God. Where we see our job description and we see us failing it. We see one who was faithful in every way, who experienced everything that we've experienced, but without sin. The author of Hebrews says, look at ourselves. We're nowhere near what God designed us for. So look at Jesus who not only lived as the perfect son and the perfect image and the perfect king in God's world, but then went on and died for you and me. And the author of Hebrews goes on to say, we see Jesus who for a little while was made lower than the angels, crowned with glory and honor because the suffering of his death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Since you and I have shares in flesh and blood, Jesus himself partook of these same things, that through this perfect son's death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Brothers and sisters, when we failed our God-given assignment, God showed up and did it himself in Jesus. And he did it not just for himself and not just for his world, but he did it for you and for me. And in him, you and I can find forgiveness for the ways we've lived lives that look nothing like praise. We can find forgiveness for rejecting our identity. We can find forgiveness for rejecting our job description. And we can find restoration to be restored by Christ, by the power of his blood, for the praise and identity and work that we were designed for. That's the good news of the gospel, brothers and sisters. God has made us little tiny germs, kings and queens in his world, and he's so committed to that project that when we screwed it up, he sent somebody to fix it and to re-recruit us to live lives of praise and prayer as queens and kings in his world. As we come to the table this morning, brothers and sisters, I want to challenge you. Do you know that, Jesus? Because if you don't, all that stuff I said earlier, you're never going to get there. We can't live the life that we were designed for apart from him. 
So if you're here this morning and you don't know that Jesus, who's the king and priest for you, who's done what you could not do, then I want to invite our community group leaders and anyone on the pastor staff, maybe it's just me, after I take communion, anybody else who wants to with me, we can be over here on either side of the table. Come, talk to us, get prayed for, hear more about this king. And if you know this Jesus, if you've got the power of his spirit on you, and you know that our lives are meant to begin and end in praise, and you know you have a royal identity, and you know you have a royal job description, and that Jesus is the one who will help you do it, what are we waiting for? Let's pray. Jesus, we are in awe. We are in awe of what you have done, the world that you've created, and then that you would give it to us to take care of. That is a, 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 a task far beyond us. Jesus, would you, would you save us from ourselves and shape us to live the life that you've called us to? We ask these things in your name. Amen.